1 Corinthians uh, 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know what the saints will judge that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to, to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you do not have to look very far in churches or even amongst Christians uh, to find conflict. Uh, in most churches, you just show up to the business meeting, bring some popcorn because there's going to be a show. Uh, I've been uh, a part of my fair share of contentious business meetings in churches, though I'm thankful that in my tenure here, we've never had one. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, but it's not just in business meetings. Uh, people, church people, uh, can hurt you by a stray comment that someone makes or by the tone of voice that they use uh, uh, in even giving instructions. I was in a church in Kentucky when I was a youth pastor, and we had homecoming every year. It's kind of this southern tradition where you just get together and eat. Uh, and, and, and we had homecoming, and every year we had this one guy make us barbecue for, for homecoming. And the same guy every year uh, had always called the guy to order the barbecue. Well, this year we had our deacons meeting and we got together and that guy was sick or whatever. He wasn't there for whatever reason. Uh, and so some other guy said, oh, well, I'll call the guy and I'll get the barbecue ordered. And so he did that. And uh, then the other guy found out and he was livid. And he said, well, I'm never doing it again. You stole my job. You took it away from me. I'm never going to do it again. And he was all mad and been out of shape about it. And the other guy was like, you can have it back. I don't want your job. I was just trying to help. Right? And he said, nope, nope, you stole it. And he got mad and they were in conflict. One time we were doing a VBS skit uh, during VBS at that same church. And uh, we had stolen this skit from uh, the camp that we were at that year. And I was playing the bad guy. Uh, and so I was, you know, in character being the bad guy the antagonist, if you will, and uh, the other guy on stage with me who was like uh, one of the good guys, I was making fun of him. Uh, and uh, part of the way I made fun of him as the bad guy was to make fun of his name, and his name was Eugene. 
and I uh, made fun of him, made fun of his name, and the next day I had someone in my office because they had a, ne- had a nephew named Eugene, and I made fun of them, and it hurt their feelings. And they were mad at me. I was in conflict. One of the, one of the most often conflicts, I think, in today's world that I hear about all the time, I've experienced, is the misinterpreting of a text message. See, y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, either someone didn't respond, so they're mad at you. Or they responded with a short message and it didn't have any emojis in it. Uh, and so the assumption was that there was stuff with you. Or instead of, you know, communicating, you hit them with a K. And if you hit somebody with the K, you might think, oh, okay, yeah, you just, you're throwing a K. But you don't know, suddenly in our culture, if you hit somebody with the K, that means I'm mad at you. And you may not know that. Now you know that. Don't, be, don't respond to anybody with the K. This is, I think this is sign language for K. Brett, am I right? Okay. Don't hit anybody with a K. At least get an OK. That's not an O. How do you do an O in sign language? Oh, man, I'm on the ball. Man. And sometimes people are just so busy they forgot to respond. However, text messaging can lead to assumptions and can lead to conflict. When one person thinks they're in conflict, another person has no idea. What I want to talk about this morning is conflict and how we resolve it, how we walk through it. That's Paul's point in this text. The first thing I want you to see is that conflict happens even amongst Christians because we are sinners. Because we're sinners. Conflict happens even among Christians because we're sinners. Paul starts out this chapter by saying, uh, one of you has a, when one of you has a grievance against another. He never says or argues that we shouldn't or won't have grievances against one another. Rather, the reality is he is assuming we will have, there will be grievances, conflict amongst one another. And so Paul begins to argue in how we handle those conflicts, not assuring that they never happen because they know he knows that they will. The reality is we are all sinners. Even those of you in this room who have followed Jesus from conception and have been following him ever since and you're 90 years old and you're more sanctified than anybody else in this room, you're still a sinner. And we've got a long way to go. Until we get to heaven and are made perfect. And so we're still sinners. And because we're sinners, we're going to be in conflict. We're going to be selfish. We're going to be self-centered. We're going to speak too quickly. We're going to hit people with a K on a text message sometimes. And we're going to be in conflict. And while we should strive to avoid conflict, the bigger idea here in this text is how do we navigate it? How do we reconcile it? How do we resolve it? Another small but interesting thing that jumped out to me when studying this text, there is a phrase repeated three times in the nine verse in nine verses. And it's the phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? And then he gives some truth. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Conflict begins or is worsened by a failure to apply the scriptures. So often the reason we're in conflict. It's because we, or the conflict's getting worse, it's because we're not applying the Bible and the truths we know and hold dear to in the Bible to our lives. 
as Paul is building his argument here for how we should be settling our conflicts, he is rooting his argument in theological, biblical truth. He's saying, guys, don't you know this or do you not know this? Well, obviously you don't because if you did know this, you wouldn't be acting like that, is his point. It's an important point to make because most of the time, our conflicts arise out of or are worsened by our failure to apply the Bible to these conflicts. Here, I'll just give you a couple examples. What is the greatest commandment in the Bible? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, in your conflict with someone, are you loving other people as yourself? Well, if you're in conflict, probably not. Because if you were loving them like yourself, you'd be a lot more patient with them because you want people to be patient with you. If you were, you'd be a lot more understanding or seeking to, be, to understand them because you want people to seek to understand you. If you were loving them, you'd be listening a lot more because you want people to listen to you. If you were, you'd be a lot more gentle and a lot more gracious because that's how you want people to treat you. For, or, or consider Philippians 2.4. Right? Uh, not looking to our own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. If you are in conflict, are you more concerned about your interests of others or of others' interests? Are you more concerned about your own priorities or the priorities and interests of others? Most likely, you're concerned about you. That's why you're in conflict. You want something, and you feel like that thing you want has been taken away from you, or you're not getting your due, or you're not getting your rights, or you're not getting what you deserve, or you're not getting what you want, and so you're in conflict. But as Paul would say, do you not know, you should be more concerned about the interests of others than the interests of yourself. Or let me do one more, James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How many conflicts would be avoided altogether if we modeled this truth in our lives? If when someone came to us saying something that offended us or hurt us or challenged something we hold dear and we wanted to get defensive, Instead of flying off the handle, instead of being defensive, instead of a sharp response, instead of snapping back, what if instead we listened all the more? What if we took the time to think and understand and were really slow to then respond and speak? And even when we spoke, if it was not out of anger, but an, even in an effort to understand more fully what that person was saying. Would we not avoid so much conflict and also understand other people better? And who knows, by our listening and understanding, might be able to help that person in some way because we are not as concerned with our being right or offended or concerned, but we're concerned with helping them. Most of our conflicts are rooted in the reality that we are failing to either know or apply the scriptures to the conflicts in our lives. And instead of living out the scriptures, we are living out our sinful reactions instead. So I want you now to see the main thrust of Paul's argument here. Uh, 
I'm going to kind of give you a thesis statement in point three of, of really what his argument is. It's this. Christians in conflict should be able to reconcile without help from the world. That's the big point of Paul's argument. Christians in conflict should be able to reconcile without help from the world. The real problem Paul is addressing here is not that they simply have some conflicts, but that they are unable to resolve their conflicts on their own inside the church, inside the body. They're fighting amongst one another, and they can't get it together. They cannot reconcile. And so what they end up doing then is they're taking each other to court. They're suing one another, taking each other to civil court to figure out the deal and to to make things right. Now, one thing that we need to really be clear on about this passage, because we could take this the wrong way here, is what Paul has in view here is civil court. This is probably a dispute over money, as you see later from verse 7 in the context, uh, where he says, Paul, where Paul says, it would be better for you to suffer wrong or to be defrauded, right? So, uh, so then to go to civil court. So we're talking about civil court here. And the reason that's important, the reason we need to be clear about that this is civil court, uh, that this is stuff like over land disputes or contract negotiation uh, or someone hasn't paid rent or something like that, is because what is not in view here is criminal activity. Paul isn't saying in the case of sexual abuse in the church or in the case of theft or in the case of rape or in the case of murder or anything like that, y'all just handle it inside here and don't let anybody know. That's not what he's saying. Uh, We also know that because in Romans 13, Paul was pretty clear that God uses the government to bring justice on those who break the law. And that's an important point to make because we live in an age where church sex abuse and church scandals are happening all over the place. And churches try to handle that sort of thing internally, and they end up just covering it up and not actually dealing with it. And while we should forgive people who commit crimes against us, that doesn't mean we don't turn them over to police. We absolutely should. All right, so we need to be clear about that on the front hand. So, so the matter here is conflict and civil disputes, conflict with one another, interrelational personal conflict, And Paul is now dumbfounded that they cannot settle these things among themselves and they've got to go to court. And here's how he says it in verse 5. He says, I saw this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between the brothers? Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle these disputes among you? I love that because that's really the point here. As Christians, we have been given new hearts. We have been given enlightened eyes. We have been given discernment and wisdom from God. The Spirit of God literally lives inside of us. And we have the Scriptures telling us what is true, how to live, what to do. We have all of these tools at our disposal to be able to handle conflict with maturity and wisdom and patience and to be able to navigate and to come out on the other side of conflict as brothers and sisters who are deeper friends for having walked through it and reconciled. But the Corinthians have failed to do that. And so they are seeing one another and taking each other to court, suing one another, and they are not living in accordance as the new people of God that God has made them. Like I said earlier, Paul is appealing to biblical truth in verses 2 and 3, that who we are in Christ 
affects how we, what we do now. He says that don't you know, do you not know, that we will be judges of the whole world? And then a few verses later, do you not know that we will judge angels? As we are in Christ, Jesus is inviting us with him to judge the world. That means we have a level of discernment, or at least God is making that in us, and one day we'll have enough to rightly judge the world with him. And if he's going to entrust that sort of judgment to us, are we so incapable now of handling such trivial pursuits? Pursuits, that's a, that's a board game. Trivial disputes. And so surely we are wise enough, patient enough, spiritually mature enough that when conflict arises, we don't have to jump down each other's throats. We don't have to split a church. We don't have to go at one another, but rather we can in patience and in wisdom and kindness and charity and love talk through and work through together, maybe with the help of a third party if we need it, someone can come in and kind of help mediate us because someone else maybe is wise enough to help us walk through this thing together. And surely we can do that without the need to go to the world, to go to civil courts, to, to go to someone else to figure this out because we have all the tools at our disposal. So here is the argument so far. We will have conflict. We will have conflict. Because we are sinners. If you ever find a church without conflict, leave it. Because you will screw it up. Because you're going to bring conflict to it. Don't go to that church. Doesn't really exist. but you know. We have conflict because we're sinners. And we should be applying the scriptures to our conflicts to resolve them. But when we fail to do so, things get worse. And they get worse. And we should be able to resolve our conflicts without the aid of unbelievers who do not have the spirit inside them like we do. The argument continues, verse 4 through 8. He says, but brothers, go, go, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here's the fourth thing. Write this down. Christians who fail to reconcile destroy their witness to the world. Christians who fail to reconcile with one another destroy their witness to the world. When you cannot reconcile and you have to take your Christian brother to court or you just, you know, never talk to each other again. Now all of your dirty laundry is being aired out in front of unbelievers. And Paul says this is a defeat for you. And then he says, why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not lose the money is his point. Money is not worth, it doesn't matter. Why not rather lose the money than lose this person? His point is, unbelievers are watching you. And it would be better for you to simply let go, even if that means you lose out on money that is owed to you, even if that means you are going to suffer a wrong or an injustice, uh, it is better for you to do that than to destroy your witness before a watching world. Because what does it say to the world when they see Christians who their central message is forgiveness, right? Like, if we talk about anything, it's forgiveness. And what does it say to the world when Christians are in conflict with one another and there's no forgiveness? They don't even believe what they're 
trotting out there. What does it say when we go after one another in a public forum? What does it say when we tear a Christian down on social media? What does it say to the world when two Christians cannot work out their difference? Man, they can't even get along. They don't even trust each other. Looks like all they care about is money and them getting their rights, them getting their due. Looks like they hate each other. I thought Christians were supposed to be about love. Think for a moment about church splits. Churches today don't typically split over theological reasons like they have historically. Most often they split because there's some big fight over the music or there's some big fight over the color of the carpet or getting rid of the pews or changing the color of the walls or because somebody's grandpa put that carpet in 30 years ago and it needs to be replaced and they're holding on to it and somebody else replaces it and they get mad and they get in conflict over some issue. They don't talk about it. They don't love each other through it. They don't put the other person's interest above themselves. They're inward focused, worried only about themselves. And they fight and they tear each other apart. And now they start some other church and people see this. The world sees this and is disgusted by it and turned off to Christianity because of it. And how many people do you know, I know a lot, who refuse to go to church because of Christians they've experienced in their life? Because of the conflict and how Christians, they watched handle conflict in their life. Christian church business meetings, not ours, ours are great, but church business meetings should be like one of the most joyous places in the world. But instead, so often you go to a church business meeting and it is like a war zone. Great! Take over! Shots fired! Unresolved conflict in the church destroys not only the church, it destroys our witness about Jesus to the watching world. The world is watching, and it makes a mockery of Jesus when we cannot reconcile and work through our differences. It makes a mockery of him. On the flip side, when we do reconcile, man, what a celebration of the gospel that is. What a witness that is to the world. That, yeah, we fight because we're sinners, but we make up. We sacrifice for one another. When you go to verses 9 through 11, it almost seems like Paul has moved on. It almost seems like he's changed subjects, but he hasn't. He's making one final point, and I think we need to hear. Verse 9, he says, or do you not know, theological point here, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Write this down, point five. Christians who fail to reconcile fail to understand the gospel. I think that's what Paul's saying here. Why is it he's moving from this conflict talk to just kind of this synopsis of the gospel? Because Christians who fail to reconcile, Christians who cannot work through their conflicts and reconcile with one another, fail on the most basic level to understand the gospel to which they believe. They say they believe. After telling us we should be able to resolve our own conflicts, he circles back to the heart of the gospel. That we were all unrighteous. 
that we were all sinners, that we were all broken, but we were all washed We were all forgiven, all of our sins washed away, justified, made right before God. We had conflict with God. Rather, God had conflict with us, really. And God resolved his conflict with us in Christ through the gospel, and he made us right. And here's the point. If you rightly understand who you are, if you rightly understand how heinous and vile and worthy of hell our sin is, and you then understand that God crossed the most massive chasm to forgive us such a great debt. If you get that, it will be easier and natural and normal for you to forgive what are, in comparison, the much smaller offenses against one another. But if you don't get that, if you think that your sin is not that big of a deal, if you think That, yeah, you needed forgiveness, but just kind of like for some minor offenses, you know, some petty offenses, some little things, no big deal. And therefore, God's forgiveness wasn't really that hard, really not that big of a deal, didn't really cost him that much. And you think, of course he should forgive you because you're a pretty good person already and you deserve your minor infractions to be forgiven. If that's your theology, if that's your understanding of yourself and of God and his grace, then of course it will be hard for you and probably sometimes impossible for you to reconcile conflict because you do not know what it is like to wrong someone on such a deep pervasive level and have received such undeserved mercy from them. You've not experienced that. And of course then, you don't know how to give it away yourself. You do not know how to extend that same sort of mercy. It is unnatural for you. Do you know why it is so easy for Paul to forgive those that wronged him and why it's so easy for him to tell us to do the same? It is because how Paul described himself, how Paul titled himself. He did not say, here I am Paul, the mightiest of theologians. He did not say, here I am Paul, the most sacred of apostles. He did not say, here am I, Paul, the greatest church planner, the holiest of Jews. No, he said he was the least of all the apostles. And he said, I am the chief of sinners. Paul knew his identity was bad. Paul knew his sin was bad. The dude writing a lot of the Bible knew that he was broken and messed up and bad and offended God. He knew his sin against a holy God deserved and earned him a VIP seat in hell. But for the grace of God that came after him, that changed him, that forgave him, made him new. You see, grace like that, when you know who you are and you know what God has done to change you and save you, that changes you. That can't not change you. And it makes you a forgiving, merciful person. You see, failing to reconcile with someone you are in conflict with means you misunderstand how bad your sin is before God or you misunderstand how much grace it took to forgive you, and the cost that was paid to forgive you of that sin. That is why the Bible says, Nathan read it earlier, if you do not forgive the sins of others, neither will your sins be forgiven. Now, I don't think what what it's saying in that passage is that if you don't forgive people, God is going to take take his forgiveness back, that he's not going to forgive you. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this, if you won't forgive others, it's because you've not experienced the magnitude of God's forgiveness. 
It's revealing. Your lack of being able to reconcile and forgive is revealing that you've not experienced that forgiveness for yourself. Guys, we are always going to have conflict in our lives. Often weekly, we're going to have conflict on one level or another. And we just have to be a people who know how to apply the scriptures and bring peace where there's conflict. Before we close today, I want to give you, this is, uh, I think, a super just practical message. Um, because we, we all have experienced conflict and we're all going to experience it again many times over. And so I want to give you 10 quick bullet points, 10 quick things, practical things to do as you face conflict. Uh, I want to be so practical here because we face it so much and I, I hope these are helpful to you. So you got to write fast. So 10 things to consider to prevent or resolve conflict. Number one, remember the golden rule. Let's just keep this up the whole time, okay? Remember the golden rule. We all know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have do them do unto you. But do you know the golden result? Peop the golden result is that people will usually treat you the way you treat them. It's the opposite. It's the inverse. Guys, most conflict starts because we're self-centered or because we acted carelessly toward the feelings of others. But if we live and actually slow down and care for people the way that we want people to care for us, we will find ourselves in a lot less conflict because people will start treating us a whole lot better. Number two, bring the gospel into every conflict. Bring the gospel into every conflict. You see, our natural tendency is not to resort to grace, but to resort to law. We love the law. Man, it is hardwired on our hearts. Moses, bring me ten more, ten more rules. I like to follow rules. We love the law. It is easier with the law, and it makes us feel better to point our finger at other people to show them, you are wrong. You see, we're in conflict, but you're the one wrong. Here's the law. Look, you did it. And it makes us feel better, and we justify ourselves by exposing the faults of others. We are looking for justification by blame shifting, the same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? Is this woman you gave me. And then Eve, who's that serpent? Right? It's always shifting the blame somewhere else. Look at how bad they are. Don't look at me. Look at what they did. And by blame shifting, we justify ourselves. We bring the law into it and not grace. And so, therefore, there's no confession, there's no forgiveness, and we're simply afraid of losing face or status. So, rather, let's bring the gospel to bear. Number three, expose the idols that are driving the conflict. I think this point right here might be the most important in some ways. So often we are in conflict, and the only thing we are talking about is the top layer of the conflict. And we don't realize what's actually driving the conflict. We don't realize what's underneath the surface. You see, underneath every sin is an idol fueling that sin, that behavior. And if you can unearth what that idol is, you're on your way to actually solving the problem instead of just treating the symptom. I have a friend who was always in a fight and in conflict with his spouse uh, over money. Uh, not that they didn't have enough, uh, but she was always nagging, always fighting, always worrying about money. And so it led to deep dysfunction and her always snapping at him, constant conflict in their marriage. Until they realized that the issue wasn't really about money. It wasn't about the money that they would spend the issue was she had an idol of security. 
And she thought, if I want to feel safe and I want to feel stable and secure, she believed this lie that if we have enough money in our bank account, I'll get those things. I'll feel safe and secure and stable. And so she would nag and worry and fight every time her husband would spend money that she didn't think was okay because it felt like security was being ripped away from her. And once they realized that that was the problem, they were able to walk through that, fix it, and resolve the conflict and heal their marriage. you got to figure out what's underneath, what the idol is. Number four, communicate so clearly that you cannot be misunderstood. Communicate so clearly that you cannot be misunderstood. Guys, almost every fight I get in or every conflict I help other people resolve is usually built on miscommunication. We say things and we think we make sense. We say things and we think they're really clear what we're saying. But the person who has heard us heard us a different way. They heard in a different tone than we intended. Or they understood you to mean something different than you meant. And so you have been fighting all of this time and you are just talking past one another. Because you're talking about two different things because you're on two different communication levels. And you're never gaining ground, you're never moving forward, you're resolving it because you're having two conversations and you don't even realize it. So slow down and make sure the other person really understands what you're saying. Make them repeat it back to you so that they get it and you're on the same page. Number five, be patient with people as they process their emotions. Be patient with people. You do not know what is going on in someone's life. What seems like a minor infraction to you or a small issue to, to you, uh, issue to you could be deeply painful to someone else for reasons you do not know or understand because you do not know their life. And so be patient with people as they navigate and think and pray through their emotions and their feelings and their defensiveness. Do not rush or force people to talk, talk it out on your timetable. Allow them some space to process. Not infinite space, but some space. Number six, resist the urge to be defensive. Resist the urge to be defensive. We get defensive for all kinds of reasons. You might feel belittled. You might feel unheard. You might feel offended, mocked, and on and on. But the moment we get defensive, reason flies out the window, and we go to fight or flight mode. When you get defensive, you go fight or flight. We withdraw, we ignore, or we fight, and both are wrong. Retreating into your own little shell is wrong, and fighting over it is wrong. Instead, when you feel yourself getting defensive, speak up and say, hey, I'm starting to get a little defensive about what you're saying right now. I feel like you're belittling me. I feel like you're mocking me. I feel like you're not taking me seriously. And most of the time when we say that, people say, oh, oh I'm sorry, that's not what I meant. I was just joking. Or I was just, I, that's not what I meant. And then you can move on and avoid the conflict. And also at the same time, teach that person to be more careful with their words and how they speak. Number seven, have charitable judgment. Have charitable judgment. Guys, this is a huge one. It is easy to think the worst of someone. When someone slaps you with the K, it is easy to think the worst of them. It is easy to believe that the tone they used, the lack of emojis they used, the fact that they didn't speak to you that day means that they're mad or they meant to hurt you or something. When most of the time in reality, people meant nothing by their tone or what they said. They did not mean to hurt you. And if they knew that you were at home 
just in a heap of something over what this person did to you, they would feel terrible if they knew you were feeling that because of what their actions. Instead of thinking the worst about people, instead of trying to understand their motives, and you're just at home playing this over and over again in your head of what their motives are, instead give them the benefit of the doubt. Think the best of them until you have facts to prove otherwise. Don't make stuff up in your mind. It doesn't do you any good. It just hurts you. Until you have the facts to prove otherwise, think the best of them, and that will help you avoid needless conflict. I think that's so important because I think we do that. We play scenarios and situations over and over and over and over again in our mind. I have had meetings with people that I thought went really well. And then a week later, they're mad at me because they replayed this conversation over and over again in their mind. And now the conversation has totally morphed and changed. And they've invented some tone or something that I said. And we got to go back together and be like, where did you get all this from? You just went home and dwelt on it and then started making stuff up that you now thought was true. And so don't do that. Think the best of people. Number eight, be approachable. Be approachable. If someone has a concern or a problem with you or so, with something you did but, and they want to come to you to talk about it, but you are a big, scary, standoffish, quickly spoken, uh, not good listener, uh, someone is not going to come talk to you, right? Uh, you are not approachable. And they're not going to be able to, the, instead of approaching you and dealing with the problem, now that issue that they got is just going to fester and fester and build and build until eventually they approach you by blowing up on you, right? And so some of you think you're approachable, and you're not. Because you think, I'm, I'm approachable, I'm, anyone come talk to me. But you're a big, scary, you know, person for whatever reason. Maybe you're not, maybe you're short, but you're still scary, Right? You, you, you think you're great and easy to talk to, but other people look at you and go, man, I'm so intimidated by that person. And so here's what you need to do. You need to go to somebody that, you, that knows you really well and that you trust and ask them and say, hey, you know me. I need you to be honest with me. Do you think I'm approachable? And if they say no, say, help me understand why. Because you may be doing something or putting on a persona that you don't understand. And so you're not approachable because of that. And so work to become more so. Number nine. Unleash the power of confession. Unleash the power of confession. If you are married, thinking about being married, one day hope to be married, uh, read the book, When Sinners Say I Do. Just do it. But the truth that is in that book that's helpful in marriage is also helpful to everyone else who is in conflict. That is, when you get into a big fight with somebody, and you've tussled and you've done all this, and let's say for, for sake of argument, in this fight, you were only 10% in the wrong. Like the other person's, not, like it's their problem. But you could come up with about 10% of the things that you did wrong. Well, if you go to the person and you say, hey man, I'm sorry for the way I reacted. I am sorry for the way I spoke. I am sorry for the way I dealt with this situation. I've sinned against you in that. Will you forgive me? Do you know what that does to the other person? I mean, I've never experienced it to be other than this. Then they say, man, I forgive you, but that really wasn't on you. That was on me. You just took the mountain, the hill, the wall that is so hard to step over, to get over, to, of confessing and owning your, your, the thing you did wrong. Because when you did that, it's like, oh, it's okay. It's cool. It's fine for me to go do it too. You just owned up. I can own up. It, it sets you free to be able to do it. And so if you're in conflict and you're only like 1% wrong, go and own that 1% and it will free up the other person to be able to own the rest of it. 
and then you can reconcile and move past it. The last thing then, number 10, be quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive. Guys, our debt before God was massive and he wiped it clean. Our debt before each other is so small. Our infractions before each other are so small. Do not allow small conflicts to ruin your relationships. Forgive and move on. Forgive quickly. Let it go. Pay the debt. Be restored. And I'll tell you, the relationships in my life that are the deepest are not the ones that I've had no conflicts with. They are the ones that I've had many conflicts with and we've reconciled again and again and again and again and again and again and again. They make those relationships deeper, more trustworthy. When forgiveness is quick, it creates a deep bond of trust and the friendship isn't hollow. Be quick to forgive. And let me just say this, like it is so helpful. It might seem awkward at first, like I'll grant that, but it's so helpful when in confession and forgiveness, particularly in marriage, but even with friends, when you, you don't go and you say, hey, man, if I offended you, I'm sorry. Don't say if I offended you. That, that's, that's a cheap, that's reducing the problem. That's saying you don't actually take it seriously. Say, no, hey, man, I hurt you. I, I'm owning that. I hurt you. I did that thing to you, and I am sorry. Will you forgive me? Like that, saying that's helpful because then the other person, don't do this. Don't go, hey, no, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Uh uh-uh, don't do that. You just cheapened his confession. You, you say, I hear that. And you say, yes, I forgive you. We're not sweeping it under the rug. We're not saying, hey, no big deal. No, it was a big deal because this guy thought it was worthy to come and confess and ask your forgiveness. And so you speak the words, look them in the eye, and you say, I forgive you. And actually do it and let it go. It is a powerful thing. When you just sweep it under the rug, it never really gets dealt with. You can say, hey, no big deal. Don't worry about it. Let's move on. You just, you didn't deal with it. Swept under the rug. It's still simmering there. But when you say, I forgive you, powerful it changes. Guys, there are some of you in this room right now, and you're in conflict. There are some of you in this room, and you are angry at someone right now. Maybe someone in this room you are angry at because you feel slighted, or betrayed, or used, or rejected, or hurt in some way, shape, or form. You are in conflict. And whether you are the offender or the one offended, the Bible says the ball is in your court. Whether you did the thing or the thing was done to you, the ball is in your court. You're not waiting on the other person to come make it right. The ball is in your court for you to go and make it right. Whether that is to go and ask for forgiveness or to go extend forgiveness before the other person asks. The ball is in your court. And the church, we are sinners, and we will always have conflict, but we are family. We are family, and we resolve it. We do not let it fester. We make it right. And so, if you are in conflict with someone in this room or someone in your life right now, as we stand here in just a moment and sing this song, I want you to get up and walk across this room and find that person and either ask their forgiveness or forgive them. That is what the scripture is calling us to do. We don't fester, we don't wait, balls in our court, we go handle it, we go take care of it. We don't need outside people to fix our problems, we can fix it because we have the Spirit of God in us. And we know, of all people, we know what forgiveness is like because we've experienced it. And so as we sing, you've got a problem, you've got something, some beef with somebody, you go make it right. Don't make up all the excuses, the devil's going to give you every excuse not to do it, you go make it right. Balls in your court. There are some of you in this room, however, you cannot imagine doing that for a second. That seems like the craziest thing in the world to you. And it seems crazy because... Forgiving someone's debt, so for, to forgive someone who has hurt you, 
seems ludicrous because you have never been forgiven by someone you hurt so deeply. Because you've never experienced the forgiveness that God offers or know that you hurt him so deeply. Well, today, you, if that's you, you stand right now in your sin, condemned, guilty, worthy of hell, in the conflict that God has with you over your sin as you have offended him. But God, the offended party, is ready to stand and wipe your slate clean. All expenses paid. To wipe it clean. If you will just come and confess it and ask him to forgive you, he will do it. Not when you get better, not when you clean up, not when you make it right. He has made it right. All you got to do is ask. And the weight on your shoulders that you have been carrying will be lifted. And you'll know love for the first time. And so if you're in this room right now and you need to reconcile with someone, as we sing this song, go do it. And if you are in this room right now and you need to be reconciled with God, get up, come talk to me or go find somebody else who can help you and come find forgiveness from God. Let's pray. Father, we are sinners. We are sinners through and through to the deepest core part of our bones. And Father, because we're sinners, we need to be made right with you. We need to be reconciled with you. And Father, for those in this room that that's not true of, I pray you would rip them up out of their seats and cause them to run down here to say, Brent, help me find this forgiveness. I want the weight lifted. And because we're sinners, we are in conflict with one another. And that's just, that's just going to happen. It's just part of being sinful. But Father, help us to be a church and a people that are quick to forgive. Help us to be a people who are not embarrassed and who are not uh, uh, shy about and who are not worried about getting up and going across the room and saying, hey, you may not know this, but I'm mad at you. And I'm sorry. We forgive me for being angry at you. We, let us be the people who are quick to go and make wrongs known and to make wrongs right. Because we, because we know what it's like to have all our wrongs right. God, help us to be a people of reconciliation. God, we love you so much and we're thankful. We pray these things in Christ's name. All those people said, let's stand up and go do what you need to do.